0: Now, let me read to you today's scripture. We're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit. It increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever, amen. Christmas is coming
1: up, so, so it makes me think about gift-giving. And have you ever been really anxious to give someone a gift? Like, you've, you've got it. It's the perfect gift. You've got it wrapped. And all you want to do is give it to them. You don't want to wait for their birthday or for Christmas or whatever the occasion is. You just want to give it to them right away. You don't, you, you don't want it to be a secret. You just can't wait for them to open it. I experience that uh, all the time. And um, it kind of reminds me of a story in my own life. When Alicia and I were first getting married, uh, we could only afford the one ring, right? We, we went to the uh, jewelry store, and uh, she helped me pick out a ring uh, so she knew what it was. It wasn't a surprise at all. But I didn't have a ring for about three years. And so on our third wedding anniversary, Alicia decided she was going to surprise me Uh, with a wedding band. And she wanted to surprise me because we kind of have this dynamic in our relationship where she buys me gifts and tries to keep them a secret, and I invariably figure out what they are ahead of time and ruin the surprise. And it's a lot of fun for me. (laughs) Um, Actually, she's much better at it these days. Um, But uh, this time, getting this ring for me, she had a problem because she didn't know my ring size. And she couldn't just ask me for my ring size because that would be a dead giveaway. So what happened was one night I was sleeping and I, I woke up and she's kneeling by the side of the bed and she's wrapping a little piece of paper around one of my fingers. And I'm, I'm kind of groggy. I just kind of noted it and went back to sleep. But in the morning, I started kind of putting two and two together. And I'm like, what was she doing? Oh, she was measuring my finger. I must be getting a ring for our anniversary that was coming up. So so I didn't want to ruin her surprise. So I, I just played along. I had no idea what she was getting me. But the, the problem was all my family, they were teasing me about it. Like, oh, Alicia's finally surprising you. She knows what you, you don't know what she's getting you. And I was like, yeah, I do. And I told them the story about the, the paper. And so what happened was her secret about what I was getting became my secret that I knew her secret. And so there were just all these, all these secrets going on. And you know, on the day of our anniversary, she gave me that gift. And uh, to be honest, I was actually surprised. It, it, I was expecting just a plain, simple band. And she actually picked out the perfect ring that I'm, I'm still delighted to wear it even 21 years later. Um, but I you know, I pretended to be surprised when I opened it and then and then i I told her like, "Hey, I kind of knew, and I told her that I had woken up when she was measuring my finger, and you know she 's really cute when she pouts, so it was it was good <laughs> um, but there 's all kinds of secrets right there 's good secrets like when we 're surprising someone with a gift or a party, and then there 's bad secrets that I don't need to list for you, but, you know, you don't want to have bad secrets in your marriage or in your relationships. Um, but this morning, we're going to talk about a different kind of secret. It's a, a secret that Paul is alluding to in our text where he, he tells this church in Philippi that he has figured out the secret to contentment, that whether he's in abundance or in need, he's learned how to be content. And doesn't that sound great right about now? Wouldn't you love to know the secret of contentment where it wouldn't matter who our president is, it wouldn't matter what uh, is going on in our finances or our country or our jobs or our families or our schools? Wouldn't it just be great if no matter what was happening, we could kind of be at peace? I think it's kind of odd, really, that the whole book of Philippians is about joy and I think it's odd that that he's talking about contentment because we know from 2nd Corinthians that the church in Philippi are in extreme poverty and we know that Paul is writing this from a prison a hole in the floor of of a structure where no light can even get in And, and yet he's always talking about joy and he's always talking about being content. That made me wonder, like, why does he call this a secret? Right? Why doesn't he just say uh, to the Philippians, hey, be content. Stop worrying about everything. Stop wondering and just be content. Um, I, th- I think why he doesn't do that is because he knows that as human beings it's pretty much impossible for us to be content, right? Because we are never satisfied with anything, and, and we're always unsettled about something. We worry about what we need, and then we worry about what we want, and then if we have what we need and what we want, we worry about losing those things. And so we're just grabbing more and more. We're always trying to get more of everything so that if we lose some of it, uh, we're still okay, and, and we're, we're just motivated by the worst things, right? We're motivated by envy, we're motivated by fear, our sinful desires. But I think what it really comes down to is we want to be in control of our lives. We want to know that everything's going to be okay, that, that we've got what we need no matter what happens. And if there's a way for us to exercise that kind of control in our lives, or, or really just to be content without having that control in our lives, there, that's not obvious to us. And so I think that's why Paul calls it a secret, because just most people don't figure this out on their own. But let, Let's take a minute and maybe imagine what it might feel like to have real contentment in life. So So just close your eyes and let me paint a picture for you. Um, Imagine if your mind is not moving at 100 miles an hour. Your, Your mind is not just constantly trying to figure out solutions to all your problems. You're not always imagining whatever the worst case scenarios are. Uh, Imagine if you're not always reliving those failures that you've experienced or or going over those conversations again and again where you wish you had said something uh, different than what you said before. And, And maybe your mind is not filled with kind of mindless drivel and fantasies that you use to just kind of distract yourself from thinking about things that are unpleasant. In fact... You're free to think about the good and the bad of your reality. You're free to consider those things carefully and live in that moment. Imagine if your body wasn't sick all the time. You, you didn't feel nauseous when you're uh, thinking about what might come down the road. You're not exhausted. When, when you go to bed at night, your, your head hits the pillow and you actually fall asleep. And when you wake up, you're refreshed and you have energy for your day, and you're able to face whatever comes and know that it's going to be okay. And in your soul, you're at rest as well. You're able to come before God without fear. You're able to. You're not imagining that he's he's waiting for you to uh, chastise you for the things that you've done wrong. And you're not living under the weight of self-imposed condemnation and shame. In fact, you delight that you are in the presence of your King and you rejoice in what it is He's called you to. That's true contentment. Doesn't that sound amazing? The Apostle Paul learned this kind of contentment. and, And he wants the Philippians... Uh, to experience that as well and so uh, we're gonna talk about it this morning first I'm gonna tell you about a couple of misconceptions that I believe we have when it comes to contentment and then we're gonna unpack Paul's secret a little bit and maybe just maybe we will be able to experience true contentment for ourselves so I, I think the biggest mistake that we make in seeking our own contentment is that we assume that it comes from our circumstances. We assume that contentment is directly related to what our circumstances are. If only I had this, if only I didn't have this, if only I knew this person, or if only I had done something differently. There's all these if-onlys. And we think that they're all related to whether or not we are content. And this kind of plays out in two false Gospels of contentment. And the first one is the prosperity gospel. So the prosperity gospel tells us like we will be content if we have an abundance of things. If we just have enough or more than enough, then we can be content. And frankly, it's pretty easy to make this error, right? Because uh, we live paycheck to paycheck, right? We don't always have everything that we need. Debts are piling up. And when we look around us, there's always somebody who has cooler stuff than us stuff that we can't have because we can't afford it. Or maybe it's relationships. Maybe we want better parents or better spouse, or better kids, or, or maybe we want to have kids, or we want to have a spouse, or maybe we don't have parents. Maybe we need to lose weight, or maybe we need to gain weight. Maybe we're trying to improve our marathon mile. I'm not trying to improve my marathon mile. Um, anything would be an improvement. Maybe we want a bigger house or an SUV instead of a compact car. Or maybe we want to move to a nicer neighborhood. If only we could live there, then we would be content. Some of us are like hoarders, right? We we have a lot of things that we need. We have so many things that we don't even use them. And yet we're afraid to get rid of them because what if we need those someday? Well, the prosperity gospel tells us If we could just obtain the things that we don't have and then keep them until we need them then the yearning for those things will go away and we'll finally be content and it sounds a little bit like wisdom but the reality is that this is entirely false it just doesn't work this way you know I've had the opportunity to go to a couple of third world countries. I've been, I've been to some of the poorest parts of Mexico. And uh, last year, I went on that trip to uh, La Cebo, Honduras. And I can tell you, these people are in a level of poverty that we don't see anywhere in the United States. But what stands out to me when I'm in these places, what always amazes me, is that I see the same degrees of happiness and contentment in the people living in those conditions as I see in Americans living in some of the world's best conditions. There's some people who aren't happy at all, and there's some people who are really, really happy, and there's just everybody in between. And and this tells me that our circumstances are not dictating whether or not we are content. The people who have the most money and the deepest relationships and the best health and the nicest stuff, those people are not any happier than the rest of us. So, th- so these things like the stuff, right, all this stuff, it- is it a bad thing? Is it a bad to have stuff? No. God blesses us through our stuff. He, the, what God provides for us, He wants us to have and He wants us to enjoy it. That's a good thing, but... But is it also true that the enemy will sometimes use these things in our life to distract us from what really satisfies us? That is absolutely true. And that is why the prosperity gospel does not work. The reality is, if we cannot learn to be content when we have little, we will never be content when we have plenty. And so this is kind of the flip side. The other false gospel is this poverty gospel. The poverty gospel says that we can only be happy if we kind of get rid of everything, right? So I once knew a guy. I still know him. He literally gave everything away. I remember I went into his bedroom. He lived in his mom's house. I went into his bedroom, and he had... Just a bare mattress lying on the floor. And he had a stack of National Geographic magazines. That was his treasured collection. And he had a record player. And it, and it only had one record. It played that song, A Horse With No Name. Right? This is what he thought was going to bring peace and contentment to his life. He thought, if I could just shed all the materialism, then I'll be content. Well, he's still not content to this day. It didn't work out really well for him. A lot of the stuff he gave away belonged to his mom. (laughs) Could it be worthwhile for us to give all our stuff away? Sure. Sure, if that's what you're being called to, if you're not doing it out of some kind of fear or misguided way of earning favor with God, you know, yeah, generosity is great. It can be a really good thing. But it's not the secret to contentment any more than pursuing wealth is. See, God doesn't want us to live like we're destitute. I think most of us have this misconception about the word contentment. We, we think it's kind of synonymous with settling for less. I think maybe it comes from our relationship with our parents, because as our parents tried to teach us about the value of money and things, they were always telling us to be content with what we had. And I think we, we were never really given a full kind of biblical understanding of the word contentment. When I was a child, my parents gave me a bicycle, and this bike was, man, it was adequate it got me from point a to point b every time and nobody made fun of it and and that's about all i could say about it i i I appreciated it it was it was a good bicycle it was a nice gift but my friend he had a pk ripper right he had a pk ripper and this bike was sweet it was all aluminum you could lift it with two fingers it was so light it was sleek And when he'd go off these dirt jumps that we made, it was like he could fly. And I wanted a PK Ripper so bad. When I went home and I kind of made the case to my parents about why I needed a new bike after they had just given me an an adequate bike, they they didn't seem to have any compassion for me. They told me, be content with what you have. Now, I know my parents were right, okay, that they were right. I didn't need a new bike, I only wanted a new bike. But the way they kind of used that that word, like, be content, it led me to believe that being content meant I had to do without. It meant I had to settle for less. I wasn't going to find contentment through learning to appreciate the bicycle that I already had. Any more than I was going to learn contentment through being bought a brand new PK Ripper. Neither of those things would have satisfied me. Let, let me explain what I mean. In, in Hebrews 13.5, the author of Hebrews tells us, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. So there it is, right? It sounds like what my parents said The Bible says, don't be driven by your desire to have more, more, more. And and if the verse stopped there, it would seem that it's just telling us, hey, be content with whatever it is you have. But the verse doesn't stop there. It goes on. It says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the point of Hebrews 13.5 is that what we have is a God who is with us always and who will never forsake us. The God of the universe, the God who created all the stuff, the God who owns all the stuff, that's the God who is always with us and who will be providing for us. That is not settling for less. That is not doing without. Regardless of what our circumstances are, what we already have is glorious beyond measure. Therefore, I said therefore. Here's a trick. When you hear the preacher say therefore, that means pay attention. So there, the, what's the therefore? That's what they taught us in seminary. Therefore, if our hearts are not satisfied, then it must mean that our God is not satisfying to us. Let me say it again if our hearts are not satisfied, then that must mean that God is not satisfactory. I think the secret to contentment is found somewhere in this understanding that satisfaction comes from the Lord and not from stuff. So, how do we find satisfaction in God? You know, what, what is this secret of being content? Well, I've never been a millionaire. And I've never been held in a Roman prison like Paul. But, but God's given me some experiences in my life where I have, ex- I have experienced uh, times of, of great abundance and I've experienced times of real, real need. My earliest childhood memories are of trailer parks. I remember, uh, after living in a house for years, I remember watching the people finally pave the road we lived on. By the time I entered high school, I would say uh, we were upper middle class. My parents' business was doing well. Now, this is Anchorage, Alaska, okay, so upper middle class Anchorage, Alaska. I'm not sure where that falls in the spectrum, but we had a lot of things that our neighbors didn't have. And people did envy us. Some of the things we had, we were doing well. And then my parents' business and, and their marriage failed. My father and his five children moved to the poorest town in Southern California where we lived in a single wide trailer with my grandparents. And then as we kind of climbed out of that that need. We lived, we lived in places where we could afford the rent, but we couldn't afford to put anything in the house. So we slept on the floor, and we ate a lot of macaroni and cheese, and, and, and the furniture that we did have was what other people had thrown away on the roadside. And all of these experiences, I think, when I became an adult, and and got married and and was responsible for my own family. These experiences had prepared me for the time when Alicia and I decided, even though we lived in Southern California, we decided that we wanted to live on just one income because we thought it was important that she stay home with the children. And and what that meant was I, I worked two hours away from where we could afford to live. And we had one car. So either she was kind of stranded at home or I was stranded at the office. And we didn't have cell phones. We, we know what it's like to have to choose between paying the electric bill and buying groceries. But we were content in those times because God had prepared me for those things through my childhood. So I think I understand what Paul's saying when he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I feel like I've learned that to a degree, not perfectly. And and that's the first part of the secret of contentment, is that contentment is learned through a process. And that process is living your life. Our friend Jeff Dunbar, he says, Your physical life is the laboratory where your spiritual life will grow. See, our contentment is not determined by our circumstances, but God uses our circumstances to teach us contentment. That's where we learn contentment. Day by day, through the course of our everyday lives, the trials and the blessings, and every day in between. But just like you can can sit through a lecture or you can sit through this sermon and not get a single thing if you're just kind of scrolling through Facebook, right? We can go through this process and not learn anything if we're not paying attention. Because see, contentment doesn't come natural to any of us. Paul had to learn it, and we, we have to learn it. What's the first thing we do as human beings, right? We come out of the womb, and we start crying. We cry out in discontent. And then that's what we kind of spend the rest of our life doing, right? Is just crying all the time. Crying about, oh, I need this, or oh, I want that. And we strive and we strive. I just need to get this stuff. That's what's natural. And if it's not natural, then it must be supernatural, Because our contentment is a spiritual condition. Therefore, we have to keep our spiritual eyes open. In verse 13 of our text, Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And doesn't this remind you of when Jesus was talking to the disciples? In Matthew 19, Jesus had just told the disciples, right? Like, it's really really hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven and the disciples were kind of like what then who can get into heaven and jesus response to them was with man this is impossible but with god all things are possible because the bible's just chock full of stuff we can't do right we're we're told to go and sin no more we're told to love one another and bear one another's burdens and forgive people. We can't do those things. We can't be perfect. It doesn't come naturally to us. And being content is really no different than those things. On our own, we can't do those things. But through Him who strengthens us, we can do all things. And Paul's point echoing this teaching of Jesus is that there's a spiritual component to all of our life. And we need to pay attention to that fact. We have to keep our spiritual eyes open because it's entirely possible to go through this whole process and not learn a darn thing about contentment. We can miss it. We get so distracted trying to find satisfaction in what is physical and temporary. These are things that will never satisfy us. We forget to keep our spiritual eyes open and we miss it. We miss what is eternal, what has eternal value, what is eternally satisfying. I don't know about you, but there's some times where I'll go an entire day without really thinking about spiritual things. And then at some point in the day, I'll remember a verse or, or just the thought of Jesus will occur to me and, and I'll be like, whoa! Like I, I've kind of forgotten who I was for a minute there. And on those days, I'm really kind of unsettled. Because I say, I say, I'm focused on myself. I, I thought I was in control there for a minute. I forgot. That I gave my life to Jesus. And I forgot that the God of the universe adopted me into His family. That I am His Son. I forgot whose I was. And that's kind of the next part of the secret is we have to know whose we are. In verse 19, Paul reassures the church in Philippi, God, guys, this church, I love the church of Philippi so much. We're told in 2 Corinthians that they are in extreme poverty. And yet, they have made it their mission. They're always looking for opportunities to go support Paul. And and this time, they heard he's in prison and they have sent him a generous gift that supplied all of his needs. And Paul knew that it put them in even more need than when they started. So Paul is reassuring him when he says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So don't make the mistake of thinking that Paul is is speaking that false prosperity gospel here. Paul is not saying, because you were so faithful in giving me this sacrificial gift, I'm now going to rain treasures down on you from on high. That's not what He's promising them. He's reminding them, hey, keep your spiritual eyes open. Expect God to behave like God always behaves. And know whose you are. In Romans 14, uh, Paul tells us, That whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You see, God's not just concerned with providing for us when we die. When we die, He will provide for us. We're not going to go to hell. We're going to live with Him forever in eternity. He's providing for us. But God is just as much concerned with providing for us while we live. And we can confidently know that God will supply our every need because we belong to Him. And God takes good care of what is His. The words of Psalm 63, verses 5 through 7. This is a good reminder of how to keep our spiritual eyes open. These are words that King David wrote probably on his darkest day. See, King David had been King David. He had everything. And and at this point in his life, his own son had risen up against him, usurped his throne, and was now hunting him down, intending to murder him. That is what's going on in King David's life when he's penning these words. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. King David was content. In fact, he was joyful even in the midst of these circumstances. Why? Because he meditated on who God was when he went to bed. See, he he calls God His help. He knows that God is His provider. He knows that God has got this. The circumstances don't matter. God's in control. He knew he belonged to God. He knew whose he was. But even even though he knew it, that wasn't enough. He chose to reflect on it every single day as he went to bed. You see, when we make knowing God a part of our spiritual life, then we're able to see Him at work in the circumstances around us when we're facing need, we will see that God is providing for us. And when we're facing abundance, we will see that it is God who is providing for us. And that, my friends, is the secret to contentment. In the 1930s, a theologian named Reinhold Naber wrote the Serenity Prayer. And I know most of you are familiar with the first few verses of the Serenity Prayer because Christians embroider it and put it on everything, right? And it's on bumper stickers and coffee mugs and keychains. You can go to Lifeway and buy 10 of them today. But if you read the whole prayer, It becomes more than a a bumper sticker slogan. It becomes something that's really, really profound. And it's something that has a lot of meaning to me personally. Uh, I've memorized it, and it's something that I recite to myself every time I go to the dentist. (laughs) I'm very afraid of the dentist, and they put the gas thing on, and I'm just literally like, give me the strength, give me the courage, you know, and... It's like it's helpful to me. But also I recite it to myself in those moments when I want to close my spiritual eyes tightly because I want to be in control. When I want to when I want to wrest control back from God and I want to give in to that temptation to just be discontent. This is a tool that I use to remind myself of whose I am and where my help comes from. So, if you don't mind i thought maybe we could stand and read it together god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change the courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference living one day at a time enjoying one moment at a time